0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
1: Each character in this tale is going to be represented by a
0: different instrument of the orchestra. For instance, the bird will
1: be played by the flute, like this.
2: The Wolf by the French Horns.
3: I'll make a bet with you. i bet you anything you like that I get to your granny's house before you do. How? Because I'll use my compass to help me across the country
0: while you trudge along the dreary
3: path compass
0: bet
4: you your heart's desire
3: and if i lose
4: you can give me a kiss
3: so soft, I thought I'd knit a shawl for your sister. But now, you know what I'll do? What, Gran? I'll make one for you. A very special shawl for a very special lady. Soft as a kitten. There's something I should tell you. Yes? But maybe you're too young. Tell me, Gran. Too young to understand. Go on, Gran, tell me. But maybe no child is ever too young. A wolf may be more than he seems. He may come in many disguises. What's that? The wolf that ate your sister was hairy on the outside. But when she died, she went straight to heaven. The worst kind of wolves are hairy on the inside. And when they bite you, they drag you with them to hell. What do you mean? Hairy on the inside? Like a furry coat? Hush now, foolish child.
1: Listen. And then he got her, and with one gulp,
2: swallowed her. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin. The scariest stations in London, in the London Underground, simply because it has a single very narrow platform that feels like a giant tongue that could pull out from under you at any moment. Hello,
1: sailor, my name's Tim. Hello, Tim, I'm Roz. And you're listening to Music for Films on Resonance104.4 FM in London, resonancefm.com for the live stream and for replay. And you can find a lot of our old shows on the beekeepers.com. We've got
2: all sorts of added value material called Music for Streets and the extended music for films. And oh, you know how you, you fiddle around with your brand just to, to make it more appealing and stick more bits on. <laughs> So, what's Clapham Common like, Ros? Clapham Common, it's a sunny afternoon in the summertime.
4: Brazil, the Brazil that I
2: knew so, it's South London home of riot, home of revelry, home of assignations and bushes, but also home of a certain sort of austere non conformity. Here in Clapham, we have a, a water fountain put up by the Temperance Society with an elaborate statue of a, of a woman pouring a glass of water to someone who might otherwise be an inebriate. And fountains now closed off for fear of public infection with lion's mouths over them so that uh, water is tough love. And this was also the home of one of the major non-Orton, crypto-nonconformist bits of Anglicanism the Clapham sect home of such well-known alleged saints like William Wilberforce who was great in the fight against slavery but also believed in keeping the lower orders in their place and not letting people get away with prostitution and sodomy and was very much a stalwart of the Society for the Reformation of Public Morals which was all about keeping people in their place. I mean, he could keep his own class in the place, but knew that was a non-starter, so he concentrated on the poor. Though, uh, subsequently, sodomy's been quite popular here on Clap Common. Yes, Coleman. I mean, you oh, know. MPs caught cottaging, I'm told. But I, I couldn't possibly comment. But not on a lovely, sunny a, evening in July. On a lovely, sunny evening in July. Because... North of the common are a lot of nice little streets with nice little houses. One of them is the house where Angela spent her last years and wrote such major work as The Bloody Chamber. And in a slightly different house, I think, Nights at the Circus and Wise Children. But you can see this is a an area with restaurants and nice little coffee shops and rather bijou organic food shops it has changed a little bit in the 20 20 or so years since Angela died but it's pretty much the same as it was back then and it's peaceful people lying on the grass dogs doing what dogs do birds going about their business planes overhead A dried-out paddling pool being dried out and not paddled in. I don't know why that is. Probably public health. Health and safety, mate. Health and safety, mate. Um, And that's presumably why the Temperance drinking fountain is all chained off. And you can't drink water from the Temperance drinking water fountain because health and safety. But probably rightly because... Ah, the time when they built things like that. The Golden Square Pump. Dr Snow's awful discovery that the pump was spreading terrible disease. And you look around and some of these houses were built in the late 18th century and some of them were built in the early 20th century. It's a very architecturally mixed area and just genially pretty in that very South London way.
1: And there's a sense in which the film, the Company of Wolves, that we put on our Scala
2: map for Here, this area for Clapham Common, that the the film. Fits let's go with, and sit on the on the Temperance Fountain because it will be more comfortable than standing. There's a sense in which the film kind of fits the common in that. The common oh, has just that little bit of controlled wildness. There's
1: a, there's a a kind of theatrical flat. Of Sobriety and restraint and gentility, but it's still South London. Still South London, mate. And uh, the, the pub over there, there's quite a lot of geezerish
2: post-Brexit um, flags, flags and lads, flags and lads. The dangerous stuff.
1: So that was us loitering with intent at Clapham Common. And uh, here we are, back in the resonance studio. Yes, indeed. And it's been about a month since we were here. Not much has happened in the last month.
2: Oh, just most of the world worst crises in British political history. Labour
1: MP assassinated. Man who destroyed the economy has become foreign secretary.
2: Uh, man who's destroyed all our relationships with every country on the, on the planet. But, um... Of perhaps more importance, you've only just won the Lambda. Yes, I won the Lambda for tiny pieces of skull. Well, mm. what is tiny pieces of skull? Tiny we we piece- haven't
1: we haven't bigged you up quite as much as we should have done on this show, no, frankly.
2: Tiny pieces of skull is a novel I wrote in nineteen eighty eight, and there is a sense in which it's a memoir about transitioning and about doing survival sex work, but it's also. One, that novel about someone British and vaguely posh getting themselves into terrible trouble in a foreign country. And two, it's a book about going down mean streets. And three, it's a book about other people's stories because in the bit of my life that to some extent served as a model for the novel, I did spend an awful lot of time hanging around in bars, hanging around in people's hotel rooms, just listening to other people's stories about their transitions, about their sex work, about other people's sex work. One of the things it's about is a completely legendary uh, Hispanic Puerto Rican, I think, uh, sex worker, trans woman, uh, who gives the book its title, Tiny Pieces of Skull, because she had at some point in the very early 70s, uh, one of the very first uh, radical um, facial feminisation surgeries where they went in from the side of her head and shaved off bone uh, from her forehead to feminise it. And hence the title Tiny Pieces of Skull, which has a lot of resonances about loss and and things you discard. Also, of course, um, tangentially... Um, one of the things that happens towards the end of the book, as in a envoy sort of way, is that Annabelle meets the legendary Mexica, uh, who's dying and is content to die because uh, terrible things have happened with some of her surgeries. And everyone says, well, that's all very structured and that's a bit pat, and you go, yeah, but it's what happened. <laughs> So one of the things the book's about is that wonderful synchronicity between memoir and fiction. It's about the things that actually happened that read as if they're a terribly structured literary creation. Whereas the bit of the novel that I actually wrote decades later when I revised it and is completely untrue is something nobody ever spots. Um, And I'm not going to tell you what it is. Read the book. Read the book. And anyway, um, a couple of years ago, a publisher said, oh, that book of yours that you wrote all those years ago, uh, can we publish it? And I said, yeah. And so that happened, and so it won a Lambda, and now I'm working on the sequel. Called? Which, uh, we're not sure. My, maybe some moments of pleasure, maybe Cream Whip. It's, it's a work in progress. It's got to be written. So, and I'm... Need to go and do it right now, except I'm too distracted by politics. What can we say?
1: Well, on, on behalf of your, your friends and your enemies and your the bewildering constellation of, of nodding acquaintances, which is, is your... Um, USP. Yep. It's long overdue that you won an award like that, and well done.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Now, as somebody who's been a kind of Homeric... Recorder and expositor of trans life that's not the only qu- quill that you have as as a, um, a I, documenter I, of
2: i 'm just someone who happens to have been in the right place at the right time i mean i for someone fairly obscure i quite significant fig- cultural figures have just wandered through the edges of my life I mean my best friend when I was 11, became a significant novelist and biographer. Very, w- one of my Oxford flatmates, he's a major musicologist and librettist. Um, two, of my fl- two, two of my flatmates are significant poets. Another of my flatmates, though not important in herself, except as a really brilliant local counsellor, is the daughter of a composer who was a close friend of Bartók and Kodai. It's that sense that your connections, and sometimes your peripheral connections with people in private life, end up being connections with the culture as a whole. The fact that um, it's that whole gag about six degrees of separation, which I'm not sure applies outside the... Western European and American middle class, actually, but it is scary the extent to which I know in how few moves I can connect myself to almost every major figure of the 20th century. It's rather because of friends of friends of friends. It's a worrying thing, and it just goes to show how how small and privileged the cultural elite often is So as we were saying when
1: we were at Clapham Common you didn't run into Angela because of your circle of friends and co-workers when you were a sex worker, when you were around people transitioning even though of course Clapham Common has got a similar set of associations to Soho
2: But I read Angela's work when I was a teenager I discovered her novels more or less as they were written Uh, I remember working my way through most of the early work in my late teens. I remember uh, when the Infernal Design Machines of Dr Hoffman came out uh, during my year working for Yorkshire Television in Leeds. I remember very specifically being so fascinated by it that I walked home from the studio reading it in the street because it was so good. And again, it's a, one well, of those things that makes it a holy book. Uh, the morning that I went in for my gender confirmation surgery, well, obviously you, you knew back in the 70s there was a risk that things would go badly wrong. I lay in bed waiting to go down to surgery and reread the Infernal Design Machines of Dr. Hoffman. When I was Talking earlier to Rosemary, I mentioned the importance of the Sardian woman to me. And what that was, was that, ironically, a couple of the feminist friends who'd always tried to dissuade me from transition had always said, but you don't existentially know how it feels to be female. How can you say that you're trans and not be able to define that? And ironically, it was one of those very friends, with whom I later fell out very badly, over-transitioning, in whose flat, uh, when hanging out after a rather boozy Sunday lunch, I picked up a copy of the Sardian woman, which she had lying around, and read it, and borrowed it, and took it home and read it, and then took it back and said, This. This is how I feel. Um... When I got to know Angela slightly, I told her that story and she said that I made her feel somewhat like Frankenstein and I was her monster. Um, We had this slightly prickly relationship which didn't always go well because I was the author of her jacket copy. I was someone that had interviewed her and yet she also had this strange reserve with me that she felt like I was her, her creation in a weird sort of cultural way. And that's one of the reasons why latterly in the last years of her life we you know we create we, you know there was distance between us, which was resolved shortly before her death because we bumped into each other in in Shining Cross Road and went for coffee, and it was fine. And it's why, simultaneously, I know a lot of things that she told me that she told no-one else, viz the uh, Vanner and her Week of Wonders thing. And I think it's because she was someone in who, You know, I was someone in whom she felt able to confide certain things, yet at the same time felt a worrying distance from... Um, It's a very odd relationship to have with one of your adolescent heroines, um, to actually get to know them, and then sort of—we never fell out. We just there was suddenly a distance that stayed distance almost till she was dead. Um,
1: This show is working out to be kind of like Clapham Common* as *The Wild Wood*, and there are all these mm. episodic moments of people running into each other. Yes. Somewhere in the forest.
2: Which brings us, as I keep saying, to the Company of Wolves, which is very much one of the classic representations of the Wildwood and how the Wildwood is the place where you go to have adventures. And, I mean, you can argue that Tiny Pieces of Skull is about the wild wood in as much as The City is a Jungle. I mean, one of Brecht's plays. And Remember how much Angela admired Bertolt Brecht, who crops up as a character in Wise Children. Brecht wrote, not one of his better plays, called In the Jungle of the Cities. It's that sense that what the wild the world would... while in one sense, the opposite of the city, is also the city's absolute synonym, because it is the, the, the wild place where you don't know what's going to come out from round the corner... You don't know what's gonna jump out from behind the bushes where you meet your destiny, and it's the opposite. The city like the Wildwood is the opposite of of the home you go back to through the city, through the Wildwood.
3: There's plenty more of these in the woods
2: if you know where to look.
3: Did you not hear what I told you? Once you stray from the path, you're lost entirely. The wild beasts know no mercy. They wait for us in the wood, in the shadow. And once you put a foot wrong, they pounce. There, there, now. Don't take on so. It's something you have to learn, otherwise you'll end up like your poor dear
2: sister. You go through the wild wood to get to Grandmother's house, and it's significant in a sense that, as... uh, Stephen Sondheim says in his version of Red Riding Hood in Into the Woods, uh, you know, off we go to grandmother's home and there before dark. Because that's the other thing about the Wildwood and the city. they are two versions of them. There is the city and the Wildwood as it is in sunlight, where you can see the green of the bushes or the, the red tiles of the buildings. And then there's the dark, or where sometimes it is pitch black, and you don't know, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And remember, Angela grew up in a period of smog, so she knew that city. She knew the city where you cannot see your hand in front of your face because of smog, or because the lights have gone out in a power cut. And there's the city, which is lit by street lighting, which is still grey and rainy sometimes where the city is transformed it's not the city of daylight it's the city that's had night Night and artificial light create a spell in the city make it magic and it's the forest the wood by moonlight and it's by moonlight, that fairy comes out and fairy plays. And, of course, in a lot of legends, it is the full moon that triggers the transformation of the man with hair on his inside, the man with only one eyebrow, into the wolf that may kill you or may have sex with you but is always going to change you utterly, possibly into another wolf, possibly into a witch.
1: So the city is the dark wood. We have this image of um, London fog and at night in the dark, all you can see is the face of Big Ben protruding Mm. through the mist or a cinema building.
2: A cinema building with its own special glorious lighting and the cinema is another version of fairy it is the home of the unexpected the gorgeous the gimcrack the fantastic the free play of imagination it's it's also a place which is a secular religion where people experience go to share revelation that's why it's not just that angela was one of the creators of an important film, uh, The Company of Wolves, and also of the television film The Magic Toy Shop, which uh, probably doesn't get enough attention because it's like The Company of Wolves. It very much gets her work. And again, it's because it's a toy shop, it's full of little bits and bobs of gimcrackery and slightly baroque little roundabouts and music boxes. And toys that wind down. And in both places, people experience awakenings. Um, they're both both the Magic Toy Shop and the Company of Wolves are like Valerie of Week and her Week of Wonders, which was, as I keep having to point out, one of Angela's favorite films, or so she said to me, they're about awakening. They're ab- you know, they're about going to places where you wake up and come into your full identity. As, of course, Angela's work was for me, as I have to keep... And for, so, for so many people. And for so many other people, but selfishly I'm concerned with myself, <laughs> because I am selfish. It's a, it's a character fault. Um. So let's talk about The Company of Walls. Like a lot of Angela's best work, it has a deliberately disjointed structure that doesn't feel disjointed because it flows. It's the story of how Rosaline goes to the country, goes to the wood and loses her sister. Now, one of the things about the loss of a close relative or a part of one's body in fairy story and myth is that it renders you liminal because part of you is alive and part of you is dead. So, in a sense, her dead sister is the shadow du- is the shadow double. She goes to see her grandmother, and she meets the huntsman in the woods, who has only one eyebrow. And when she gets to her grandmother's house he's sitting in her grandmother's rocking chair and something is burning in the fire and it's her mother her grandmother's mob cap and something's on the floor that she treads on which is her grandmother's glasses and she knows that he the huntsman is the wolf and has killed her grandmother and she holds him off and he says the words about his eyes And his teeth being all the better to eat you with, and she shoots him because she's an Angela Carter heroine, (laughs) and he's left his—he's rather stupidly left his gun lying around (laughs) because one of the things about Angela Carter's heroines is they're infinitely practical. You know, you flirt with you flirt with the dangerous man, and then you shoot him (laughs) with his own gun. Except, of course, that he turns into a wolf, a wounded wolf, and she feels sorry for him. And then later, people come to her and find her. She's turned into a wolf, and then she hasn't turned into a wolf, and so it goes. And meanwhile, stories get told. There's the story of the, of the girl who's been seduced and left pregnant by her aristocratic seducer. You can tell he's an aristocrat because he's dressed up in 18th century clothing with with a white wig and powder and little Cupid's bow lips. And his aristocratic sweetheart and a musician's playing Mozart. (laughs) And she laughs at him and, and she shatters a mirror and suddenly he and his bride and their guests but not the musicians and not the servants, because she has class consciousness, <laughs> turn into wolves and rush out into the forest. And later we see her nursing her baby and the wolves serenade her. Creatures of the night, to quote someone else entirely, what music they made, how sweet they sing. <laughs> um, it's a story that's inter- interrupted by other stories. There's the story of the of the wolf girl who came up th- from an underworld through a well and is shot and uh, adopts a human form and is helped by, by a minister in a church, but will always go back to, to her world once she's better. And she's a wild child. She is a feral child, because that's one of the other things that the film draws on is that sense of the of the uncanny child who is one thing and also another Um, it's about liminality, it's about threshold states, it's about story, I mean that's why, even though of course it's Neil Jordan's film, it's very much Neil Jordan's film about Angela's work and the angela and of Angela, and not just because she wrote the script. I'm very
1: struck by the fact that this is a show called Music for Films, and the music in The Company of Wolves by George Fenton, who was uh, uh, best known as a television composer for shows like The Blue Planet, it's one of those 80s synth scores which does its job. It's there, it underscores the drama, yeah. it moves the plot along, it makes... No strong impression.
2: It's perfectly... I mean, if you compare it with Valerie and a Week of Wonders, who's the music from which we have used before... By Lubos Fischer. Lubos Fischer.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, that is a truly great movie score. You know, that you can sit and listen to the score for Valerie and Her Week of Wonders as an independent, free-flowing piece of music. And one of the things about music for films is not all great films have great scores. Um, though we are called music for films, one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that sometimes the score is just a workman-like thing. An underbed. An underbed that's part of what the experience of the film, but it's has no external, has no life apart from the film.
1: And Valerie and Her Week of Wonders is a very intriguing film because it has had not one terrific score, but two, there's the Bosch Fisher score, but now it's been revived. Um, there's an American consort who perform a completely new score. Oh, I hadn't known about this. It's every bit as haunting and angular as the Bosch Fisher, but it's a completely different piece of work.
2: But, of course, I mean, it's like um, Philip Glass's scores for, for various films, you know, which are perfectly valid scores in their own right, perfectly valid scores for those films. Some films are unimaginable without their original score. Some films where the score is part of the experience have might have been scores it's like the Alec North score for 2001 and I've never seen 2001 with the Alex North music but the Alex North music is I've got it on I've got it on disc it's gorgeous and sometime I'll turn the sound off and, <laughs> and play it while I'm watching 2001 Like, oh, Captain Blood, um, which you cannot imagine without um, w- w- without the Corn Gold score. The Corn Gold score, without being as through composed for for, for the film as say Alexander Nevsky is or, or or Ivan Grozny, is still nonetheless, you know, part of your imagined memory. King Kong King Kong Star Wars Star Wars Um, uh, Alien Alien which of course like um, 2001 ended up using music that had no original connection with it at all I mean Kubrick and Ridley Scott very much people who assemble scores from other material as of course Quentin Tarantino does with obscure pop music rather than with classical music but I mean Ridley Scott for Alien uses a variety of things um, and Cameron follows the same the same logic and does the same thing do you think in the, Aliens.
1: Do you think the musicality of The Company of Wolves is Angela's poetry?
2: Hmm. In a sense, yes. It's that sense of <sighs> poetry, because her poetry is... Deliberately, uh, here's a thing and here's another thing. Um, the score to some extent echoes that, you know, because it's oh, uh, here's a riff, there's a riff. We were
1: very lucky to talk to our guest earlier, Rosemary Hill, who uh, talked to us very engagingly about all the things we've just been talking about yes. architecture, because she's written a biography about um, Pugin. Pugin, and of course, Angela's poems,
2: which she's edited because she. Wanted to read them and realised that there wasn't an edition, so she went out and did an edition because she'd found a copy of a couple of, of, of some of them in her, uh, her late husband's box of precious things.
1: So we were very lucky earlier on to talk to Rosemary Hill, and she also shared with us some thoughts about Christopher Logue, who is another presence in our Scala map.
2: Oh, omnipresent in our Scala map. One of those people, because, like Angela, He was a jobbing writer who would turn his hand to almost anything if there was a paycheck attached. Um, Great pornographer, I'm told. I'll have to to check that out. Worked worked for Gerodius at Olympia. Uh, In his uh, memoirs, he talks about Gerodius with uh, that... Mixture of admiration, admiration, admi- amusement, and bitterness, which anyone who ever dealt with Maurice Korodia seems to have had towards him, whether they were Nabokov or, or Henry Miller.
1: Well, we we didn't talk to Rosemary Hill about her husband's pornography, but we did talk to her about Angela Carter, and particularly Angela
2: Carter and architecture. And Angela Carter and the Company of Wolves.
5: Angela Carter Close is in SW9. And Lambeth Council, named it after Angela Carter, but also Anne Thorne, who's the architect who designed these houses, was uh, very conscious of doing something that was in honour of what she describes as the famous feminist novelist. And we might come back to discussing how accurate that is. But what I thought was interesting about them is their nine houses, nine timber-framed houses sustainable practical but the main thing about them is that they've got porches they've got gables they've got front gardens and they really are um, a 21st century reinvention of that idea of the home which is what the english who've never unlike the scots and, and, and europeans never liked flats home is always where the front garden is
2: yes yes indeed and that's one of the things that's worth commenting on about carter is is her intrinsic englishness even though she wasn't particularly english i mean you know, her family background was
5: scots a couple of generations back i think so but her childhood was so deeply english
2: and so deeply london
5: Yes, though I think those early years up in Yorkshire during the war...
2: That's right, of course. ..when she
5: went and stayed with her grandmother to be out of London. And she afterwards recalled it very affectionately of being always a little bit healthily cold and having national health orange juice. And that slightly austere side of her, I think, found its first expression there, and she never lost that. She always liked that slightly brisk...
2: There's that wonderful description she has of going... Uh, when she was quite young, to see her grandmother all dolled up in finery and her grandmother mocking her.
5: I don't. I haven't read that, but I'm uh. sure... Yes, I mean, I can sort of imagine... Because there, there is very much... It's one of the most fascinating things about her, I think, that there is this combination of kind of, say, being a bit chilly and drinking your health-giving orange juice and this unbelievably flamboyant, transgressive persona which Mm. runs alongside it.
2: And there's that wonderful description in one of the writings about how cinema gave her a taste for the flamboyant and the Mm. gimcrack and the slightly trashy and the gloriously baroque. And it's that tension between the scholarly and the poetic and the austere and very Labour. um, Very 1940s Labour Party. Yes and the 1960s. That's, that's one of the strengths of her work. And of course, there's also her fascination with the past. I mean, one of the points you make in your book about the poetry is the extent to which in her, uh, in her early years when she was writing poetry, it was very much playing with medievalism and tradition. Um, there's that, you, talk to us about that and talk about the unicorn in particular.
5: Well, she specialised. She went as a mature student to Bristol University. She said afterwards that she didn't go to university immediately because she got the impression from her mother that if you weren't going to go to Oxford or Cambridge, there was just no point going at all. And a couple of years later, she reconsidered that and she went to Bristol and she read English and she chose to specialise in medieval literature Partly because, um, as is implied by the essay she wrote later about Walter Delamere, that it was a kind of safe space because the prevailing Inglit orthodoxy then was very leversite, the Great Tradition, mm-hmm. what she described as the "eat up your broccoli" approach. <laughs> uh which I you know, she knew about um but once you went into the middle ages and particularly if you were interested in writers like Thomas Brown who then weren't really even considered to be literary no, authors exactly. um, you were in the kind of badlands you could already i think she was moving towards a space where she could do what she wanted regardless of the rules um and of course medieval literature is full of um sex and violence of a sort that by the time you get to Leavis and the Great Tradition, has been completely kind of um, sublimated or removed.
2: Respectabilised.
5: Respectabilised, yes, very good word. Um, And so she was interested in reading these things, but she started off, and I think it's one of the interesting things about looking at the poetry, even when, as poetry perhaps it is, as you said earlier, apprentice work, that she liked the idea of taking a pre-existing text and reinventing it, reworking it, as she did, of course, later with The Bloody Chamber. Exactly. So people know where this is going, or rather they know where it's meant to be going. Yes. And then you immediately create a tension.
2: And, I mean, one of the best examples of that is the, is the Dunbar version, The Two Women and the Widow. Yes. Um, which is... Glor- I mean, I don't know the original terribly well, but what she actually does is slightly up the borediness factor, even from the original...
5: Well, you know, it's interesting you say that, because I... Well, maybe
2: it's just that the language, because it's modern, is more direct.
5: Actually, on the whole... I mean, the first thing she does is make it much shorter, um, which, I mean, is perfectly reasonable. Um, In fact, her version is slightly more decorous, surprisingly, because um, the alliterative uh, verse of Dunbar, which she sort of... She hints at, but actually drive you mad if you yes. tried to mm-hmm. render that in modern. But there are a lot of um, things that he comes out and says um, or he has his female characters come out and say um, about male impotence and pathetic willies and things like that, which she sort of she does in a slightly nudge nudge way. But she, So I would say, if anything, it shows how the 1960s, particularly the very early 60s, were still not what we think of the 60s as being, which was one of her great themes, that the 60s was not like you think it was.
2: And the other thing that's very noticeable about Unicorn is that it's quite dis- deliberately disjointed in structure, which is something mm. she went on to explore in a lot of her work. Could you talk about that a second?
5: Well, Unicorn obviously... The imagery comes out of the medievalism. And again, it's an idea that we're all very familiar with. And the unicorn is a perfect uh, image for someone who's going to do what Carter's going to do. Because if you say to anybody, unicorn, they will have an instant mental picture. They know what you're talking about. At the same time, no one's ever seen one, as far as I know. (laughs) So she had this image which was already in and out of consciousness and then th- what I loved about The Unicorn the first time I read it was that she just says, let us assemble our pieces. This is a cut-out, this is mythology as a kind of flat pack of characters and scenes that you, the author, can reassemble. And she makes no bones about the fact that that's yeah. what she's doing.
2: And that's what she went on to do um, more and more in her mature work, You know that she works with the figure of the circus, the figure of the the Showbiz the Showbiz autobiography. Um, she in Hoffman she throws in the jungle, the rebels, the war, the Madonna and whore doubling. There's this endless inventiveness with tropes that pre-exist. Yes. You know, she is very much a writer who is not about the cult of originality. It's about how you treat things. I mean, that's what the, blood, the bloody chamber is about. The bloody chamber is about reinvention of pre-existing stories. And she also was fascinated by fairy story for that very reason, which is why she did those wonderful anthologies of fairy story. Which brings us to the company of wolves. Yes. Uh, that I will be. I will be saying that phrase several times in the course of this <laughs> this show. Which brings us to the company of wolves. Now. When did you first see that? You've never actually met Angela, but you—no—but she was a friend of your husband's.
5: She was an acquaintance of my husband. Their paths crossed. And Christopher Logue, my husband, whenever Angela Carter's name came up in conversation, which inevitably it did quite often, he would always say she was very underrated as a poet. And everyone else would say, a poet. Because nobody really knew. And when I came to write for the London Review of Books about Angela Carter, I thought, well, I'll put in some of this poetry that Christopher talked mm. about. And because so much of her work had been republished, I was expecting just to order a copy on Amazon or something. And then I realised that it hadn't been republished. And Christopher had kept in his box of really special things, like his letter from Ezra Pound. Um, <laughs>
2: There's posh.
5: It is posh, yes. Ezra Pound read to him after his first collection and said it was not bad. Um, <laughs> Christopher thought was the best review he ever had but in there was stapled together um, a roneoed version of Unicorn which I think was pretty much the only freestanding version there ever was and so I thought well this is just I mean I'm not really a literary critic I'm a cultural historian and I just thought this is a job that needs doing this yes. needs sorting out she needs to have absolutely. the poetry in print absolutely we're imprint. all
4: grateful to you <laughs> oh, thank
5: you um and so then i but i also found that, of course where she had published was very interesting and revealing of how she was thinking in those early years and who she knew and it it sort of did begin to form a bit of a biographical picture
2: where where where, she, where did she publish
5: well she published well first of all in um, a literary magazine which was produced in bristol With another poet, and um, in the British Library, under in the catalogue, it just says first and only issue. And we've all worked on those magazines, we all know what happens. And but she, but most interestingly, she published in a thing called the Aylesbury Review. And the Aylesbury Review, which was produced by um, Father Brockard Sewell out of this extremely strange revived Franciscan friary in Kent, where they had the head of St. Simon's Stock, and they also had a kind of arts and crafts thing going on with ceramics, and they had the Aylesford Review, which was incredibly radical in all sorts of ways, but because it appeared out of a monastery in a rather kind of bland format, um, Father Sewell got away with murder, really. And in there you will see all sorts of people, Michael Hastings, Angela Carter, publishing for the first time... And for Angela Carter, I think, because it shades into that strange English mysticism, which is a bit William Morris, it's mm-hmm. a bit memories of the Middle Ages, the world before the Reformation
2: a bit potted potted plants and tiles
5: potted plants and tiles, but also that sense that there is before the Reformation. Aubrey says that wonderful thing about the new learning and how absolutely terrific it is, but what a pity that um, Robin Hood and the fairies have yes. been chased away. And that echo, which, of course, she was very keen to bring yes, Robin Hood and absolutely. the fairies back, it suited her that, so I was sort of pleased to find her there. I thought that was extremely interesting that she gravitated into that strange mm. circle so quickly.
2: But it's also... The other thing that we we lose with the Middle Ages is that sense of the, of the, of the wild wood. Yes. Of the of of the forest of danger, which she very much brings back in her work,
5: absolutely, and also the sort of permeability of this world and another world, yes. the ease, which is one reason I think she was fascinated by Alice and the idea of the looking glass. That sense that you're in the wild forest, or is it in you?
2: Yes, and well, <laughs> both presumably, and and you know that, that one of the points about. Werewolves is that they're hairy on the inside. Yes, <laughs> and you can always tell because of the because of the eyebrows that grow together.
5: Yes, well that that was a very present legend even when we were growing up, wasn't yes. it? People whose eyebrows met in the middle.
2: And it's something that she works with so very tellingly. But it's also that sense that there is a countervailing sense. That's that's a, a be, beware of men. Hmm. Uh, legend in a sense but there's the countervailing myth that we, we get from the mother in The Company of Wolves that men should be aware of women Yes There's that wonderful and one of the things that struck me about the Dunbar poem is that it links in a weird way to the image of the pregnant young woman in The Company of Wolves who curses her seducer and his guests and his bride, so that they turn into wolves.
3: The wolves in the forest are more decent.
2: And as she does so, she just roars with laughter. (laughs) And it's very much the laughter of Angela's grandmother when she saw her dolled up, of course.
5: Yes, and those heroic... um... Heroic mother figures, the mother who gallops to save Bluebeard's bride.
2: Yes, with the, with the pistols.
5: With the pistols, absolutely. Um, and her whole take on the Marquis de Sade, which got her into of trouble, of course, with yes. the feminists, which is that it is a kind of empowering of women in a way that is not acceptable.
2: Yes, it's, it's about accepting, accepting the dark side of strength... Yes. but and the all... bawdiness of strength.
5: And the impropriety of strength um, in women.
2: Yes, I mean, and, and that links closely to the later novels and to Feathers in Nights at the Circus and the way that in her relationship with the rather wet hero, Feathers is the one with power, as well as wings.
5: <laughs> yes, um, and we're never quite sure, again, where Feathers actually ends. Yes. And where the wings, when the wings come off. And also, I think one of the things I noticed more about the novels, having looked at the poetry, is those extraordinary images, the corset cast off like the shell of a giant prawn. I mean, wonderful images, which are purely poet, sort of studded in like jewels into the prose. But um, yes, I mean, Fevers is, she's she's a very considerable literary triumph i think because you yeah. do completely believe in her
2: yeah i mean i remember by, i mean as you probably won't remember it, it it came through chatter when i was working there and i got to write the the, the jacket copy
5: oh wow i didn't know that which meant
2: <laughs> that i was you know, the jacket copy on the first edition right of the circus is by me
5: i'll go and look at it immediately one of my
2: proud, proudest <laughs> boasts just saying <laughs> Um, but it was that sense, because I was already a huge fan of her work, as I turned over the pages of the typescript, oh, crumbs, she's got better.
5: Yes, yes. Well, there's that middle part of her career which divides opinion, shall we say. Yes. Um And she said herself that she went in two novels, from being a promising young writer to being completely ignored.
2: Yes, because she started to use it, without becoming a science fiction writer in a meaningful sense, she started using tropes from science fiction and acknowledging her debt to science fiction writers. I mean, I originally met Angela, whom I didn't know that well but knew somewhat. I originally met her partly because she started being a guest of honour at science fiction conventions and I interviewed her. Um, and partly because some of her work, some of her short stories, appeared in science fiction magazines, including one of which I was co-editor. Um, and I mean, I, I, I've written about Carter's rather complicated relationship with science fiction in the in Flesh and the Mirror, the Lorna La- Sage collection. Um, when yes, it, it led to her being pigeonholed as not really one of us, not really very respectable anymore. And that's part and that starts with Heroes and Villains and continues through Hoffman, the Infernal Desire Machines of Doctor Hoffman, which mm. is one of my favourites of her books, to The Passion of New Eve, which for a whole bunch of reasons is my least favourite of her books. And yet there is a through line there where she's exploring stuff that eventually she puts aside. Mm. Um, because Knights at the Circus and Wise Children are very much more... Which are the point at which she became respectable again. And, and people suddenly went back and retrospectively respectabilised the Bloody Chamber and the Sardian Woman. Mm. And when those came out, they were not quite the thing. Well, the Sardian Woman certainly wasn't. Absolutely. Um, got her absolutely yelled at. But when people looked at where she was going those books suddenly got reassessed.
5: Yes. Well, I think you've got to be fair to readers. I mean, I don't think there's anything... It no. is quite... Um, without hindsight, following a writer's career can be quite a roller coaster. Yes. And I think a lot of thoughtful, sincere admirers of her work were a bit sort of nonplussed at different points. And, as you say, everybody was stumped by the Sardian woman. <laughs> People couldn't work out where <laughs> she was coming or going really
2: yeah well, i mean uh some point i will talk somewhere else about the effect that book had on my own life it absolutely cr- crystallized a whole bunch of things for me um but it was a book and literally I, I was shown it by friends and sat and devoured it and said oh my god oh my god and people say but but
5: there's <laughs> an incredibly interesting book um I think it's it's just full of good things. It's to me, it it's a kind of a bit of a ragbag. I don't. I think she yes. follows arguments here and then she follows them there. But the point is, she's prepared to countenance those arguments and those ideas, which absolutely nobody else, right, left, feminist, misogynist, would ever have counted. Yeah.
2: In a sense, structurally, the thing it remi- you know, with hindsight, it reminds me of is Thomas Brown who has that same habit of just going oh and another thing
5: and another thing and also the way that she brings that which we talked about that sort of slightly brisk schoolmarmish tone when she complains about de Saad. and at this point he dithers and you think of all the things one yes. might level against sard dithering is is an unusual choice yes
2: but it's it's something she does in a lot of the essays where she yes. suddenly goes off to tangent and yes. says oh when one has thinks about simon de, simone de beauvoir you you look at her with, with Jean-Paul Sartre and you say, why? <laughs> yes. It's the essay in which she, she talks about D.H. Lawrence. Said, for, a st- for a straight cis man... She doesn't say cis because it wasn't in the in- For a straight cis man, he's awfully obsessed with women's underwear.
5: <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, she's very good on the stockings in in, um, yes. in Lawrence. Uh, um, and I think she has an absolutely solid point.
2: And... and uh, Frankly, yes, about Beauvoir and Sartre. Oh
5: yeah, no, I, I, I haven't read that essay, but I always thought that myself, yeah. um, and it always rather undermined one's admiration for Simone Beauvoir because you think, yeah, but, but, but what? I mean, you know, what are you doing?
2: I mean, and especially after she, she's had Nelson Algren. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. Yeah. Uh, to to dump Nelson Algren to go back to Sartre you go there must have been something going on we just don't understand we just
5: don't understand Um... but I mean is
2: that it's a thing about Carter that yes we're joking but in a sense that's a very serious insight that she does have that the grandmotherly eye Mm. the, the 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 mocking the boredness the laughing um it's the, it's the aspect of her that Terry Pratchett admires so, so much. I mean, I don't know if you know, but when I interviewed Terry many years before his death, he acknowledged, but I wasn't allowed to say so till after he was dead, that Angela was the mo- Angela was the model for Granny Weatherwax.
5: Oh wow! I had no idea. But, but that's you, great. But yes. you can
2: see how Yes, worked. yes, that's. And absolutely. actually, in a sense, also for Nanny York. You know that the Granny Weatherwax is the scary. Yes. Angela and Nanny York is the is the jokey, bawdy side, and you go. I mean, when Terry said this out of the blue, because I was grilling him about the way Angela wrote about story and the way that impinges on the Discworld jo- novels, mm. and said, "Is there an influence?" And he said, "Well, yes, of course there is." And and then he rather shamefacedly said, "There's this thing I want to tell someone, but you mustn't mention it while I'm alive." <laughs>
5: Well, I don't know why he thought that. I think it <laughs> does great credit to both of them. But I think, yes, I mean, there is the grandmotherly witchy eye, there's the grandmotherly kindly eye, and there's also the child's wide eye, the yeah. Alice eye, which simply says, I look at Simone de Beauvoir standing next to Sartre, and I think, what on earth are you doing? Yes, yeah. well, that's w-
2: bringing back to Company of Wolves, it is the maiden, the mother and the crone. yes. And their absolute presence there. And of course, that's a standard trope, and it's one that she's terribly good with.
5: And brought from the Middle Ages.
2: And brought from the Middle Ages, exactly so. And brought from her poetry. There are two things that really strike me from
1: this conversation. One is that, um, I mean, obviously, I didn't meet Angela Carter either. Um, but I've heard a lot about her because you did know her quite well, Ross. Well. And and people that my mum knew or Jane Gaskell knew, knew her. She's always struck me as being quite like a character in an Anthony Pohl novel. Now, we always say this, don't we, Ros? Yes. Everyone's always a character from an Anthony Pole novel. Well, there
2: are so many characters in Anthony Pohl. <laughs> <laughs> and because Pole I mean, possibly one of the great opposites of Carter, in terms of has that perception about life and the way that people interweave through lives. But you were saying...
1: Well, it, it just strikes me that she's... If it was Shakespeare, she'd be... You know, like the like the canard about um, Ross in Macbeth... Is that actually it, it's Ross who makes the plot work... But he's hardly in it. Is that so many authors, so many artists... Who I've spoken to in my life... Angela Carter is absolutely pivotal influence on them. They've taken so much from her. And yet, in culture... And even this film we're talking about, the Company of Wolves, um, Channel Four made it. I remember it being very well reviewed at the time. I remember it being in the Face magazine. I mean, it was one of the it was the equivalent of a hipster film at the time, along with films like Diva. Um, but now, when I was researching for this show, one of the things that, that um, impressed itself on me is that ITV have brought out a Blu-ray, but it's not a very good transfer. And actually, you're better off getting the DVD, folks. Um, you would have thought that given it's the one Angela Carter film which she had a hand in with the screenplay but it's, it's Neil Jordan, he's one of mm. the, the great contemporary directors you would have thought actually BFI or someone would have lavished more care on it and there's almost a way in which Angela Carter is sort of there but she's kind of assumed
5: I think that's, well of course that's how I started off with the poems I was looking for where they'd been republished and was surprised to find they hadn't been the other aspect of her, which I think is being completely forgotten, is the radio plays. Absolutely. And the The Fairy fellow's Master Stroke, the one about which is again a, the Midsummer Night's Dream theme, which is another theme that goes through, um, where she took an existing story um, about Richard Dad, who the madman who murdered his father. Um, it's a wonderful play, and I can't. I, I mean, I say that, I've read it in my head. I can't find a recording of it. Right. And um, they should, should just be redone. The scripts are all there. Yes, I just mean, they're, they're
2: all in the collected works.
5: Yes, we'll come onto these yellow sands is this the collection of the radio plays. But yes, yes I mean, they, they, they are in print. Yes. Or they were in print. They have been printed. I mean, that's the other thing. Quite a lot of the books are out
1: And There were so many people, when, when we were researching and putting together the films on the Scholar map and there were people who kept cropping up. Lindsay Kemp was another one. Um, the film producer, Leon Claw, was another one. I'm bound to say Christopher, your husband. He wrote the script for uh, Savage Messiah. I had to put that at *Kenzel Rise*, the um, Ken Russell film. But also he's uh, a contributor to Ken Loach's film, Poor Cow. He, yes. he co-wrote a song with uh, Donovan.
5: He did. Well, the, the book itself, of course, was based on... The film itself was based on Mel Dunn's book. Um, Nell Dunn also gets slightly written out of both yes. Poor Cow and Up the Junction one years back, Ken Loach um, and Tony Garnett um, but they were her books and and Christopher knew her and so yeah, that's how that came about but I mean, it was also, that was a side of the 60s that was like you think it was that there was a very free idea of collaborating with between film and poetry and painting and,
2: mm. and the, the... There's just that sense of drawing on other work, hmm. um, that and and moving between forms. That um, I'm tr- struggling struggling to say what I'm thinking, but it's that sense of the, in the sixties that that everything was suddenly everything was. It's an anti levis thing. It's the fact that there is no. Proper, real disjuncture, betwi- d- d- dissonance between popular culture and high culture, that yeah. Leavis is just wrong.
5: Yes. What a relief it was. When we oh, what a that. relief. Um, yes, exactly, the the putting together of things. And also, which is another thing I think is interesting about Angela Carter's medievalism, if you can call it that, that going back before the Romantics, with the Romantics, the the cult of originality becomes very important. But, of course, Shakespeare, didn't, apart from The Tempest, doesn't seem to have had any original plot. Okay. And that, sim- that I- simple idea of going back to a story that we're all familiar with and making it strange again.
2: Yeah. And, and though The Tempest is um, his one original yes. plot, it, it it draws on a whole, oh, the magic island.
5: Yes, exactly. That is a trope. That is a trope.
2: The the magician who has a place. Um
5: the love story,
2: the love story, the game of chess.
5: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um,
2: got um, got the, the the speech about the ut- you know the speech about setting up a utopia on a desert, yes. desert island. Yeah, these are all. It, it's in a way, it's an assemblage of of tropes.
5: Yes, that's true. That is true. Um, so I think yes, the freedom to be unoriginal was quite important.
2: Absolutely, and I think that's probably.
1: Well I was, I was going to make one other point When I've researched movie theatres Where midnight movies were shown From about seventy seventy one, 71 Ros and I have made pilgrimages to some of these Like the Pagoda Palace Theatre At the bottom of Russia Hill in San Francisco Where the, uh, the Coquettes first performed It's extraordinary to discover How many Cinemas Perhaps like the Electric in Notting Hill Or the Granada in Tucson, Where Angela uh, went to see films with her dad When she was young They've alternated between being cinemas and places of worship for the simple reason that they have a big footprint. In America, they often end up either being cathedrals or or parking lots. I wonder if The Company of Wolves and films are like that in the sense of they're just such a big kind of aggregate chunk of culture that The Company of Wolves is part of Angela's um, oeuvre, part of Angela's work, which won't go away because... Because there it is.
2: Yeah. Well, that's the thing about Wise Children. It is a celebration, among other things, of the golden age of musical and the golden age of cinema.
5: And the golden age of Brixton. Uh, But also, um, the thing about the Tooting Granada, if I can just say something, quickly, Um, um, is that it wasn't just that it was a cinema. It was a very particular cinema. Um, There were two which were designed by Komosherevsky. Who was um, the designer? Who was brought? He was a most extraordinary man. He was married, a Russian exile, married to Peggy Ashcroft at some at one stage, uh, a, a a kind of amazingly exuberant designer. And the Grenada company brought him in because the Odians, of course, were all very sleek Art Deco faience tiles, clean lines. They wanted something very, very not that, and mm-hmm. they got um, who created these things, which are exactly halfway between a gothic cathedral and a cinema. And that sense that she obviously had sitting there, that it was both incredibly glamorous, but close to the gilt was all a bit chipped. Um, I th- uh, and the strange shadows, anything, as strange as anything you were seeing on the screen. So I think it's very important to remember it was that particular cinema that yes. made such an impression on her, as well as cinema in general.
2: Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Perhaps the- you'd care to read off the, off the wall that quote? So this is a quote from, uh, in
1: 1992, there was an omnibus with Angela Carter and there's a lovely sequence in it where she's there with her husband and son and they're watching a 1935 film of I Midsummer mean, Night's Dream. There is something sacred about the cinema, which is to do with it being public, to do with people going together with the intention of visualising, experiencing the same experience, having the same revelation. Yes. Then there's this other fabulous quote about the Granada tooting, which is, and this was from a handwritten manuscript, which is in the British Library. So no one's actually bothered to type this up yet, but there's, there's a scan of her handwriting, oh, which is, to step through the door of this dream cathedral of voluptuous 30s wish-fulfillment architecture was to set up a tension within me that has never resolved. The tension between inside and outside, between the unappeasable appetite for the unexpected, the gorgeous, the gym-grack, she spells it Jim grack rather than Jim crack the fantastic, the free play of the imagination. Yeah.
5: Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And that's very much what her work was.
5: Yes. Absolutely. And then I think that is the interesting thing about a career which to some extent seems to take different turns and go through move through different phases, that actually everything was there right at the beginning.
2: Yes. It's it's of a piece and unfortunately was was so brutally cut short.
5: Yes.
1: Okay. Well, Rosemary, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure.
5: Not at all. It certainly has been an absolute pleasure, as far as I'm concerned. No, it's, it's great. Yeah. Really, is. i had no idea about the Terry Pratchett thing.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, because I haven't really. Well, have, that. Yeah. It's one of those things that the other thing I know about Ange- knew about Angela, which I appear to be the only source of, because we had a conversation about it, was um, Ballerina: Her Week of Wonders, the Czech film, which very influ- much influences the style of The Company of Wolves which, on the basis of a few showings in the early 70s in London in places like The Electric, was one of her fa- favourite films and is also one of my favourite films, about which we've already done a programme. <laughs> um, and she doesn't seem to have said that anywhere else. Um, when people cite it as clearly an influence, yeah. they have to quote me.
3: Well, well nothing <laughs> but, wrong with that. Well, nothing
2: wrong with that, but I feel a bit... I'm not supposed to be someone that people quote, um, but yes, I mean she talked very powerfully about how it, how it's a complete revelation to her because it is about it's about puberty, it's about the the monster within, it's about dream, mm. and it's also has that slightly late 1960s toilet paper ad <laughs> lyricism. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's it's a good film, but it's not a great film because some of it just it's all pastels. But don't all.
5: you think that people are almost always inspired by things that are not great? Because if something is absolutely a masterpiece, you're not, what it you shuts take you it? up. What you, exactly? That's and that's that's part of its strength. Whereas something which has got something good in it but isn't actually overall that good hmm. is the perfect or, or, or the, has
2: real problems and deeply yes. flawed. Well, I yep. mean, like Dessard.
5: Yes. Well, I mean, there's a, I think there's a lot of Angela Carter wanting to just sort him out.
2: Yes. Yes. Just walk up to him and slap him. Well, repeatedly. exactly. Just
5: get it, get it together. Um, Stop it, man. Stop yes. it. Yes. 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 Yeah, pull yourself together. Um, it's one of those fantasy history games to play, but I would have just loved to have introduced them. Yes.
2: yes I indeed. think he would
5: have adored her.
2: He would have grovelled.
5: He would have absolutely grovelled.
2: <laughs> <Yep>. Okay. <laughs>
4: from circumstances.
0: I'm I'm afraid that Freud wins hands down most of the
5: time because the imagery is so beautiful and extraordinary. The stories in The Blooded Chamber are derived purely from that surprise, from analyzing the imagery as though it came, you know, um, out of my brain. Not from out of nowhere, but as though it came out of.
6: I met Angela Carter in Dublin. She's, she had written a great collection of stories called The Bloody Chamber yeah. and other stories. It was a kind of a redoing, a kind of a postmodern kind of reworking of various Grimm's fairy tales. And I met her in Dublin. She was there for the uh, centenary of James Joyce and where the government invited writers from all over the world. Myself and Angela got talking. And she'd written a tiny little radio play, which is about 30 pages long, based on the central story in this uh, collection called The Company of Wolves. And she showed it to me and thought it could be made into a movie. And when I read it, it was too short to make into a film, but it was quite fascinating. So I read the stories again and I, I basically said to her, look, if we can come up with a structure whereby somebody is telling... A, an overall story and within that story there are other stories and within the stories that we were telling somebody else is telling a story so we come up with this kind of like uh, Chinese box structure maybe I could get all of her um, short stories in this collection which were all basically reworkings of uh, fairy tales bringing out the sexual motifs and the kind of dark horrific motifs of them and I th- we could perhaps get it all into the one movie so that was the plan and you know I went to London and sat in her house every day and we'd just talk about it in the morning and she'd go off and write and I'd go off and write and we'd meet again the next morning and compare notes and we finished it in about two weeks I think Well there you were
1: listening to some of the DVD commentary from the Company of Wolves with the director Neil Jordan and before that the voice of Angela Carter talking about uh, Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis which is of course uh, very relevant to what we were talking to Rosemary Hill about Yes indeed well, what a terrific guest Rosemary was. Wasn't I, she just? I, I, absolutely delighted, and I hope um, we can have her in again.
2: Yes, I, I do too, um, because I haven't seen her in years. I mean, it's one of those casual things, you know, people who drift in and out of each other's lives. I mean, I knew Rosemary because one of her best friends at Cambridge became one of my best friends for a while and then disappeared from both our lives. And Rosemary, very, Rosemary and Christopher very kindly invited me to their wedding, and occasionally I'd go round and see them um and I used to bump into Christopher in Soho occasionally because we used the same Italian delicatessen and bought our bought our mixed salamis there and would chat in the salami queue.
1: Well, that's our show. Um, I've got some resonance business to deal with because we're recording this a couple of days before broadcast for once. For once. We actually know what's on after us, so uh, stay tuned for Chilled, Calmed and Collected, which is uh, Joe Shashut's show of chill-out music. And then after that at 10 o'clock, Spools Out Radio, that's uh, Tristan Bath waxing lyrical, if one can wax lyrical, about cassette culture. Cool. And then after that, um, I will be making a point of listening... I will, I'll be listening to all the other shows as well, but I think both of us will be making a point of listening to Queer Temporalities, "Ennoia Neopatomalus, um, challenging some of our preconceptions about LGBT identity.
2: Gosh. I should definitely listen to that.
1: And don't forget that on Saturdays, 4.30 to 6.30, Johnny Trunk, OST... We haven't had Johnny in to talk to us yet, but OST is effectively our other half. It's two hours of chat and music from original soundtracks, and uh, I commend it to you. It's repeated on Monday. Right. And if you miss this show or you want to listen to any of our other shows, you can find all our old stuff on the beekeepers.com, including a link to our podcast, More Music for Films. More Music for Films. So who have we got in uh, next, next time? Ooh.
2: I think Pat Mills. Pat Mills. Pat Mills. Gosh, Pat Mills. Yes, 2000 AD. Pat Mills. Warrior. Pat Mills. Nemesis. Pat, Pat Mills. Yes.
1: Solly's <laughs> War. Pat Mills.
2: Yes. Flipping heck. Yes. Isn't it exciting?
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I've been really excited. It's always exciting sitting talking to you. It's always ex- all our guests have been great. I'm bound to say that. But. Blimey, I am beside myself. Don't miss this next show with Pat Mills. We are talking to him about... It happened
2: here, and to a lesser extent, Silent Village. And we might talk a little bit about... Ooh, went the day well? Might do.
6: This is the voice of British resistance. The German conquest of England has brought with it everything which loyal Englishmen despise. We must fight them whenever and wherever we can.
0: What would have happened if the German army had crossed the English Channel?
2: What it's like to be occupied by a completely hostile regime that will kill you if you step out of line? Ah. Uh, Nothing like anything that we know now. Nothing like any experience we have ever had, right? So, uh, And Big Brother is
1: watching you. (laughs) If we're still here in August. (laughs) Third Monday of uh, of the month. Pat Mills talking about It Happened Here. One of his favourite films, he tells us, and I've got to say it's one of mine as well, so wow. It's very good. It's very, very good.
2: And... Oh, and The Silent Village... Humphrey Jennings Humphrey Jennings See, it's not all gimcrack It's not all (laughs) It's not all the fantastic Some of it is gritty Some of it is well gritty Music for films, it's that hard That hard Come on then, if you're hard enough Enough. And listen to music for films
1: films. So if you're hard enough, join us Next month Same bat show, same bat station Resonance FM (laughs)
2: Okay.
7: menu in his hand, walking through the streets of Soho in the rain, he was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fooks, gonna get a big dish of beef chow, man. Tim no. Kind of gent who ran a mucking Kent. Lately he's been overheard in Mayfair. You better stay away from him. He'll rip your lungs out, Jim. I'd like to meet his tailor. Ah, ooh, werewolves of London. With the Queen, doing the werewolves of London. I saw a long Cheney Jr. walking with the Queen, doing the werewolves of London. I saw werewolves drinking a pina colada at Trader Vic's.
8: whisper, please adore me, and when I look, the moon had turned to gold, blue moon, now I'm no longer alone, without a dream in my heart, without a love of my own. Someone I really could care for And then they suddenly appeared before me The only one my arms will ever hold I heard somebody whisper, please adore me And I looked, the moon had turned to gold Blue moon Now I'm no longer alone Without a dream in my heart without a love of my own
9: I've got you under my skin I've got you deep in the heart of me So Deep in my heart, you're really a part of me. I've got you under my skin. I tried so not to give in. I said to myself, this affair never will go so well. But why should I try to resist when darling i know so well i've got you under my skin i'd sacrifice anything come what might for the sake of having you near in spite of the warning voice that comes in the night and repeats and repeats in my ear don't you know Each time that I do, just the thought of you makes me stop before I begin. Yes, I've got you Mm, under my skin. spite of the warning voice That comes in the night And repeats And repeats In my ear Doubt you know Little fool You never can win Use your mentality Wake up to reality But each time that I
0: he can Be not too hard when he gladly dies Defending things he does not own Be not too hard if he tells lies and if his heart is sometimes like a stone Be not too hard for soon he dies Often no wiser than he began Be not too hard, for life is short And nothing is given to man to her for soon he died
1: could hear the duck quacking inside the
0: wolf because the wolf in his hurry had swallowed her alive. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.